Welcome to TMD Podcast. This is the case of Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy Stratton was a Canadian Playboy playmate from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. As stunningly beautiful on the inside as she was out, she had begun a very promising career in modeling as well as acting until her life was snuffed out by her controlling, narcissistic ex-husband who shot her dead in a jealous rage before turning the gun on himself. Playboy Mansion's Hugh Hefner never got over the great loss of Dorothy. She was a modern-day Marilyn Monroe. Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten was born on February 28, 1960, in Grace Maternity Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her parents, Simon and Nellie Hoogstraten, had previously immigrated to Canada from the Netherlands. Her parents went on to have a son, John Arthur, in 1961, and another daughter, Louise, in 1968. Dorothy would later shorten her last name to Stratton. Over the years, her younger sister followed suit and also changed her last name to Louise Stratton. Dorothy's childhood was far from the life she was living at the Playboy Mansion. Her parents divorced when she was young. Dorothy often watched and cared for her younger siblings, while her mother worked very hard cleaning houses to support them. She grew up in a very rough neighborhood of Vancouver, but she was intelligent enough to keep herself out of trouble for the most part. Stratton claimed she was the ugly duckling throughout her school days and got teased a fair bit. However, she definitely came into her own after high school. A great reminder to children, the ugly duckling always turns into the beautiful swan. Don't forget that. It was shortly after her days in high school when the beautiful blonde attracted the attention of Paul Snyder, where she was working part-time at the local Dairy Queen in Vancouver. Snyder came into the Dairy Queen a number of times asking Dorothy out on a date, and though she turned him down the first few times, he was able to eventually win her over with his charm. Apparently, Paul Snyder was a very charming individual, as are most narcissists. Dorothy, age 17 at the time, began dating the 26-year-old Paul Snyder. Snyder was a club promoter and a star wannabe. Rumors had also circled that Snyder was a pimp, though Dorothy had no idea of that when she first started dating him. In the summer of 1978, less than a year after she began dating Paul Snyder, he convinced Dorothy to allow a photographer friend of his to take some nude photos of her because Paul had come across an advertisement searching for Playboy models for their 25th Playboy anniversary edition. Paul had sent her photos into Playboy magazine. Playboy contacted Snyder and Stratton and later flew Dorothy out to Los Angeles, California, where she became a candidate for the magazine. Paul Snyder later joined her in 1978. There was, however, a minor bump in the road for Stratton. She was under the legal age of 19, so she needed to persuade her mother to sign the release form. 
Thankfully, her mother signed, and in August of 1978, Dorothy moved to L.A. Unfortunately for that issue, she lost to Candy Loving. I do believe the only reason she lost to Candy Loving was because she was so new to the business. She was just discovered. She was the whole package. But I know that Hugh felt that she just didn't have enough growth, enough experience behind her, where Candy Loving was just a little more mature and a little more experienced, and I do believe that was the reason that Candy Loving won that year. Dorothy was made playmate in August of 1979. Hugh Hefner had stated in several interviews that the singular reason that Stratton did not win that year was simply because of her young age and inexperience. He admitted he had no doubts whatsoever that she had what it took to not just be a playmate, but to become a huge star. It was in June of 1979 when Dorothy was pressured into marrying Paul Snyder, who had a Svengali-like influence on her. Friends and family of Dorothy spoke of how vulnerable Dorothy was and a real people-pleaser. Paul Snyder founded Chippendales, the male dancers, but that didn't stop him from having full control over his new wife's career. And I do believe that the only reason that he married her or wanted him to marry him was so he could control her. He was a very controlling man. He wouldn't even allow her to work anywhere unless he had full access to where she was working. He could come behind the scenes and watch every move that Dorothy made. Dorothy felt obligated to marry him, and I believe she only married him out of her guilt. He guilted her knowing that it was all him who got her where she was. It was all, all Paul. He got her her big chance, her big break, and to this day, I wish that she had never met him. Because had she not met Paul, she might still be alive today. After the August issue of Playboy came out, Dorothy began working as a bunny at the Playboy Club in Century City, Los Angeles. She found roles in a few movies, notably Americathon in 1979, Skate Town, USA, in 1979, as well as an ABC shot at the Playboy Mansion. Dorothy was also featured in episodes of the television series Buck Rogers and Fantasy Island, as well as the lead role in Autumnborn. In 1980, Dorothy's star was on the rise. A highlight of her career was when Hugh Hefner revealed to her that she was to be named you got it. Playmate of the Year for 1980. That was huge. With photographer Mario Casilli. During this time, she was absolutely over the moon with her career taking off, but she was so extremely unhappy in her marriage to Snyder. I don't believe she was ever in love with him. I really don't. Dorothy finally told Snyder she needed to take a break from their marriage. Though she didn't want to hurt him, she just needed some space. It was at this time 
that Dorothy flew back home to Vancouver, Canada to spend some time with her mom and her siblings. Her mother got remarried to a man that she divorced just a few months later, and it was her younger sister Louise's birthday. During this visit, Snyder called Dorothy, and she asked him to please stay in Los Angeles. She did not want him coming up to Vancouver. She wanted some space from him. Snyder was threatening her over the phone, and, of course, he flew up to Vancouver anyways and attended Dorothy's mother's wedding, even though Dorothy begged him not to come. Men like him don't care. Not just men like him, but women like him. Narcissists don't care about anybody. Nobody else's feelings, what they want, none of it matters to them. During filming of the 1980 movie Galaxina, Paul Snyder grew increasingly jealous and angered when he learned that Dorothy was developing a more than friendly relationship with director Peter Bogdanovich. Though Dorothy and Bogdanovich had not acted on their feelings at that point, within months during the filming of the movie They All Laughed, director Peter Bogdanovich and Dorothy had fallen in love with one another. Though they kept it between them and the movie crew, it was crucial for Dorothy to keep this love affair from her estranged husband until they were officially divorced. Dorothy knew that Paul would not take well to this, and the most important thing to Dorothy was to not hurt Paul. She felt such a deep loyalty to Paul, and in her divorce filings, she was offering Snyder an extremely generous settlement, just to keep him happy. But sadly, that would not be enough for him. That's one thing that I've really grown to love and admire about Dorothy Stratton, is over the years that I've researched her, was how incredible of a human being she really was. This woman had a heart of the purest gold, she was, as I mentioned earlier, stunningly beautiful on the exterior, but what really made me adore her was the kind and beautiful, caring, compassionate soul that she was. She genuinely cared about her friends, family, anybody that she came across. She showed the most respect, love, compassion, empathy towards absolutely everybody. If she had thought she had done something or said something that might have hurt someone, she immediately had to fix it or do anything in her power to make the people happy. She was just that kind of girl. She was deeply, deeply ridden with guilt. If she upset anybody, she always had to make things right. Over the weeks to come, Dorothy's friends and colleagues were seeing a lot of red flags with her estranged husband, Paul Snyder. And unfortunately, they were really beginning to worry about her and her safety. Friends, including Hugh Hefner, encouraged Dorothy to sever all ties with Snyder. Roseanne Caton and other friends warned Dorothy about Snyder's erratic behavior calling him a dangerous, mentally unstable hustler who always had to have his way. 
They worried for Dorothy's safety if she were to be alone with him, especially now that they were separated. And God only knows how he'd react if he found out about Peter Bogdanovich's relationship with Dorothy. Remember, it was Dorothy who wanted to separate from the marriage. Paul Snyder never wanted to dissolve their marriage, I believe, because he didn't want to lose control over her. Financial, whatever. Personally, I don't believe he was even in love with her. I think he was obsessed with her, but not in love with her. The only person Paul was capable of loving was himself. Snyder often referred to Stratton as his, quote, rocket to the moon, unquote. He even went so far as to hire a private investigator to follow her. He had such an obsession, he did not want to lose control over any financial aspects, anything at all. To him, Dorothy was property and nothing more. And all he could see was the huge financial loss that he was about to get, <laughs> being that Dorothy was pretty much the cash cow to him. In media interviews, several close friends of Dorothy claimed that they literally begged her to not ever meet Snyder alone. During these weeks, Dorothy would often show up at the Playboy Mansion upset and in tears, looking for a place to rest and just to get away from Paul. When director Peter Bogdanovich learned of this, he immediately had Dorothy move in with him to his home, where she could feel safe. Of course, once Snyder learned of this, he was outraged. He was constantly harassing Dorothy, over the phone, at her work, stalking her, and really just pushing her away for good. That's all he was doing. On Wednesday, August the 13th of 1980, Paul Snyder bought a used 12-gauge pump-action shotgun from a private seller that he found on a classified ad. That evening, Snyder was out with a group of friends. When he later informed his friends that he had purchased the gun earlier that day, telling them that he was going to, quote, take up hunting, end quote. These same friends said that Paul was handling the breakup with Dorothy much better than they anticipated <laughs> and described Snyder as being quite jovial, happy, and seemingly having a great time. It was at this time during the same conversation that Paul Snyder had brought up the subject of a past Playboy playmate who had unexpectedly died. In particular, he spoke of Claudia Jennings. Claudia was a former Playmate of the Year and an actress who had been killed in a car crash just the year prior. Snyder had also made a number of really morbid remarks through laughter regarding problems that the Playboy has had to deal with that were brought on by Jennings' death. He also made a terrifying remark about how the editors of Playboy magazine will pull nudes of a dead playmate from the coming issue, if there's time. Friends of Paul had no idea what Snyder meant by that comment, 
and just kind of shrugged it off, chalking it up to his drinking that evening. I don't believe any of Paul Franz knew what he was truly capable of, or what he had planned for the following day. Paul Snyder was a professional manipulator, an egomaniac, an extreme narcissist, and completely mentally unstable. Thursday, August the 14th of 1980, began as any other day for Dorothy. From Canada, her 12-year-old sister was visiting her L.A. home, which Dorothy now shared with Peter Bogdanovich. They ran some errands in the morning, and then they went to a photo shoot. Later that morning, Dorothy told her younger sister that she had some business appointments, and after that she had to go stop by her soon-to-be ex-husband Paul Snyder's house to discuss their upcoming divorce. Dorothy didn't want to see him, but Paul was threatening her and harassing Dorothy over the phone until he got her to agree to go and visit him in person so they could go over everything and come to an agreement on their divorce papers. Louise begged her big sister to let her come with her, but Dorothy told her to stay with Peter's kids, and she promised she would be back by two o'clock in the afternoon. Dorothy told her little sister, Please do not tell anyone where I'm going. She did not want anybody to know she was going to stop by Paul's house because nobody would have approved. Dorothy left the house and went to a couple of her appointments. Then she headed over for the home she used to share with Paul Snyder in hopes that she could settle this divorce and get him to stop harassing her 24-7. Paul now had two roommates living with him. The male roommate was a doctor, and he was unfortunately away at work for the day. The female roommate told Paul that she was going to go roller skating to give him a chance to talk to Dorothy without any interruptions. Oh, how I wish she had stayed home. At about 12 o'clock noon, Dorothy arrived at Paul's West Los Angeles home. She was never seen or heard from again. When 2 o'clock p.m. came, Dorothy's little sister sat outside of Bagdanovich's home waiting for her big sister to come and pick her up. 3 o'clock came and went. 4 o'clock came and went. Louise, even at the young age of 12, knew something was wrong. It's not like her big sister to be late. But she remembered what Dorothy told her. Don't tell anyone where she was going. So she went back into the house and sat and waited. Even though Stratton's business manager had told her just hours before to stop all contact with Paul and let her divorce attorney handle all dealings with him, Dorothy replied, I'd like to remain his friend. When Dorothy arrived at Paul's, his two roommates were gone, so the two of them were alone in the house. A few hours later, the female roommate came back home and saw Dorothy's purse in the living room, lying open, but no sign of Paul or Dorothy. She assumed they were 
making up in his bedroom. So she grabbed what she needed for her dinner plans that night, and out she went. Around 8 o'clock p.m. that night, both roommates came back home. They saw Dorothy's vehicle parked out front and saw that Snyder's bedroom door was closed. Assuming they wanted their privacy, the two roommates spent the next several hours watching television in the living room. Paul's private detective alerted the roommates around 11 o'clock that night when they decided to enter Paul's room to check on them. Both were completely horrified at what they saw. Both Dorothy and Paul had been killed by a single blast from Snyder's shotgun. Both bodies were nude. According to the police timeline, Snyder had shot Stratton that afternoon within an hour of her arrival at the house. About an hour after that, Snyder turned the gun on himself. Police said Snyder tied Stratton up to a mechanical device that he designed, sexually assaulted her, and then put the shotgun next to her face and pulled the trigger. He then turned the gun on himself to complete the murder-suicide. Police also found $1,100 in cash amongst Dorothy's belongings in the house, which she apparently brought to give Paul Snyder as a down payment, again to keep him happy. Back then, $1,100 was a lot of money. At about midnight, the private detective phoned Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion and told him Stratton had been murdered. Hefner then called Peter Bogdanovich, who collapsed at the horrifying news. Doctors had to keep him sedated for a period of time. It was too much for Peter to take, and he did not have it in him to tell Dorothy's 12-year-old sister, who was staying with him at that time. All he could tell her was he needed to send her back home to her mom's in Canada, and that Dorothy had to go away for work and she's very sorry. It was last minute, so she didn't have a chance to tell you. Poor girl. Can you even imagine what that poor girl went through? When Dorothy's mother and her mother's new husband picked little Louise up at the airport, her mum was wearing dark sunglasses that covered half her face, and her mother didn't even say a word the entire way home. No one told her anything. Little Louise didn't even learn that her sister had died, never mind that she was killed in the fashion that she was, until the actual day of Dorothy's funeral. Dorothy's mum... Her whole world had crashed in on her. Losing her daughter was unbearable, and daughters had to keep her very sedated for more than a week. Dorothy's mum was never the same. The world came crashing down on Louise and on Dorothy's younger brother. To this day, the only family member of Dorothy's who has ever spoken spoken of this tragedy 
or to any media or visit her gravesite is her little sister Louise. Not because her mother and brother didn't love Dorothy. They loved her more than life. It was just so painful for them. It is hard to imagine what that poor family went through. Dorothy's mother's marriage to her new husband, as if she hadn't gone through enough, crumbled within days of Dorothy's murder. When he was trying to be helpful and take care of Dorothy's service, knowing that Dorothy's mom was in no position to deal with it, she was grieving so horribly, her new husband had Dorothy cremated without even asking her mother. To say she was devastated is an understatement. He went and had her remains cremated without asking any of Dorothy's family members. No wonder Dorothy's mum got divorced from him. He doesn't sound like he was very thoughtful kind of per- kind of person. Peter Bogdanovich came up to Canada and took care of Dorothy's family and paid for everything. He stayed long enough to make sure that they would be okay. Peter, later with permission from Dorothy's mother, took her ashes and had her buried at a Los Angeles cemetery. Peter also had a beautiful headstone made for Dorothy with a passage from a favorite book of Dorothy's that she was currently reading, an Ernest Hemingway novel titled A Farewell to Arms. Three years later, the author's granddaughter, Mariel Hemingway, played Stratton in the biopic movie Star 80. It is heartbreaking how many lives were destroyed by this tragedy. The long friendship between Hugh Hefner and Peter Bagdanovich soured when Dorothy confided in Bagdanovich that Hefner had raped her during her first night as a playmate. In August of 1981, one year after Dorothy Stratton's death, the romantic comedy They All Laughed, which was written and directed by Peter Bagdanovich, had its U.S. release. When test runs of this film didn't do so well, Bagdanovich fought to buy the rights to this movie, and using $5 million of his own money, which was at the time his entire net worth, he released They All Laughed, but unfortunately this left him bankrupt, and he ended up losing his home where he and Stratton had lived together. There have been two made-for-TV movies portraying Dorothy's life. One, called Death of a Centerfold, The Dorothy Stratton Story, in 1981 with Jamie Lee Curtis playing Dorothy and Bruce Weitz playing Paul Snyder. The other movie, Star 80, in 1983, with Mariel Hemingway playing Stratton and Eric Roberts playing Snyder. Personally, I didn't care for the 1981 movie. However, I really did enjoy Star 80. In 1984, Peter Bogdanovich wrote a book about Dorothy Stratton titled The Killing of the Unicorn. Four years later, 
at the age of 49, Bogdanovich married, you got it, Dorothy's little sister, Louise, who was just 20 years old. So he's 49, just married her little sister, who's 20. Bogdanovich paid for Louise's private schooling and modeling classes following Stratton's death. They remained married, though, for 13 years before divorcing in 2001. 13 years, that's pretty good in this day and age. I mean, should be forever, but we all know life, you know, things have changed. Brian Adams, who of course is another Canadian, a singer-songwriter and co-writer, Jim Valance, wrote the song, The Best Was Yet to Come as a dedication to Dorothy Stratton. And there have also been a few other singers, bands, groups who have written tribute songs to her as well. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and hopefully we will have another topic up soon. Enjoy your day. Thanks for watching, listening.